Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group for the new Fatara scorecard, the glass really is half full. It's agency hopping season, and that season probably won't end anytime soon. And tracking the troubles at the thrift savings plan. It's Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a new leader for its electronic health records program. Dr. David Massaro will coordinate the development and implementation of the modernization program across VA offices. He started in the new job Monday. The Defense Information Systems Agency is extending its Thunderdome cybersecurity prototyping program. The agency says it will expand the program to the Secure Internet Protocol Router Network. DISA began the program in January. It was supposed to run six months. The extension will take it through January 2023. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 2022 edition of Fed Talks is less than three weeks away now. The federal CIO, Claire Martorana, and the DOD CIO, John Sherman, are just two of the high-level leaders in government, industry, and academia that you'll see at Fed Talks. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Fatara Scorecard 14 looks better than Scorecard 13. Two of the measures overseers have used in the past have improved so much they're coming off the scorecard altogether. Dave Wenegren's chief executive officer of ACT-IAC, he's former chief information officer of the Navy, former deputy defense department CIO, and a former assistant deputy chief management officer at DOD. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Great to see you as always. I realize that the scenario that I laid out about Fatara Scorecard 14 is the glass half full scenario. Is there a glass half empty about the results that you see in scorecard 14? And if so, what do you see? Welcome. Well, it's great to be here with you. And I love glasses being half full. It's my sort of nature in life. And so so I, I think there's a couple of things, if we could do both, because because the positive things about the data center's improvement is good, you know, but uh, you had Carol Harris on yesterday. It was a great interview with her. And I'd love to foot stomp two things that she said. And one was that, the, you know, the moving from counting data centers to focusing on accelerating cloud migration is a great next step. And I'd like to foot stomp that. You and I have talked about that before, but also the point that she made about in the portfolio space, that moving to more of a look at the legacy systems, right? They can continue to consume the agency budgets. There are thousands and thousands of them. They eat the majority of the operations maintenance budget, the entire federal technology budget. And we need to look at how we can retire and replace and refresh them. So if there's a glass have empty side, part of it would be about making sure that we have outcome-based measures that are helping to advance the cause. Because you could count data centers and get yourself to fewer data centers, but not have improved your technology modernization. Mm -hmm. That's why counting the legacy applications are so important. And I think the other place where there's a glass half empty and it's less about the agencies, but the cybersecurity measure this time just focused on the IGs. And, and, right, and IGs, even doing their best work, tend to focus on whether or not you're compliant. So compliance is one thing, but again, we need to focus on what's new that needs to be done. And so hopefully, as the federal IT operating plan gets implemented and the cap goals get produced, like a look at how are we doing about moving to things like zero trust architecture and what's next and what's new will help make those measures more meaningful. All right. Out, what's an outcome-based measure look like in your view for cybersecurity in particular, but for some of the other measures uh, that, that uh, are in play here? 
Yeah, well, I'd love to see demonstrable project on adopting zero trust architecture. It's an important step that says, you know, if we have strong identity management and we're constantly verifying and, and, and checking who's who and not just trusting everybody once they get in and do a better job around data security, that we'll have will improve our cybersecurity outcomes. So that's clearly one. There's a couple of the scores in the scorecard. And I don't say this as criticism because the scorecard is a really super important tool. But there's a couple of scores on the scorecard where every there's always three Ds and an F no matter how well we're doing, right? And so if we could shift some of those about progress against the goal, how are you doing, you know, if you have a plan to retire a thousand legacy systems this year, are you 300 in, are you 10 in, right? Things that we can count and match progress on would be much more effective. Plus it's a little bit disconcerting and certainly is in confidence building to always have somebody be inept no matter if a high tide has risen all boat or not. All right. Is this is one legacy system, though, the same as another legacy system? So is retiring this one compared to that one making as much impact on the long term modernization and refreshment of an agency's IT posture? No, it's a little bit like data centers, right? I could close the server under my desk and it's not quite the same as some big giant honking data center in a warehouse, right? And so, yeah. And so, I mean, there's got to be some thoughtfulness. I, I think it's like a combination of qualitative and quantitative. Right. And and again, you know, we've talked about this before. If we can move from just oversight to focusing on outcomes, we would say things like agency X, what's your plan for the next year? I intend to move this stuff to the cloud. I intend to shut down these systems and replace these systems. That plan may not be nearly as aggressive as some other agencies plan because, you know, HUD is much smaller than the Department of Defense. But, you know, how do we do against that plan? And then the oversight hearing could be maybe your plan's not aggressive enough or you're not making progress against your plan rather than, you know, just counting inputs. Another legacy system argument that I hear from time to time, not as much as I did maybe five or 10 years ago, is, well, this legacy system works. And so it should at least be a lower priority. And maybe we don't touch it at all because it works and it's not maybe connected to a network. It operates independently. Is that still a yeah. legitimate argument in 2022, Dave? I, I believe so. If you look underneath of some fancy web-based front-end stuff that you do online, like booking an airline flight, there's probably still some legacy mainframe living underneath of that. So so all legacy is not bad, but legacy eating 80% of your budget, not so good, right? And so again, I think like the, 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 the front line knows best, right? And so the agency knows which ones they really are giving them a hard time in terms of no longer supported by the manufacturer, no longer secure, right? And so, you know, I think if you ask the agency to make a plan and then force them to report on the progress of that plan, that would be better than just counting. You mentioned the new IT strategic plan. What do you see there that's significant, Dave? Well, the, the IT operating claim, which was released yes. in June by OMB, has got like four primary goals. They are all great cybersecurity, which we just talked about. And there in that document, they focus on zero trust, which again could feed back into a better measure for the Fataris scorecard. Second one's IT modernization. And we've covered that one. Got to get to that legacy. Got to finish the movement to the cloud. But cloud is, but it's more than just infrastructure of the cloud. Then there's the digital first customer experience, which is really a powerful one. Right, moving from paper to plastic, but also shifting the emphasis on customer experience. It does so much for us. It not only helps improve technology modernization outcomes, but it actually helps to build trust in government. 
How do you interact with your government? Are you getting great customer care? Is it a frictionless transaction and those sorts of things? So, so that's like crucially important. And the fourth one is data, which again is always important because you know the, what's the next GPS kind of application where we can unleash an entrepreneurial engine because of data that we put into the into the public. So all of those are good. I do think that uh, you know some of the stuff that's talked about in the IT operating plan relates back to the scorecard, and that is that you know it it takes a group. It's a CXO kind of endeavor. And, you know, one of the things the Fatari scorecard measures, for example, is, you know, do you report to the secretary? And that's another one that think about sunset because just about everybody does. But they might want to think about, like, modifying that to now look at, you know, what's the relationship of the CIO to the budget and the acquisition of the agency? Because, you know, that's sort of that combination of its responsibility of the financial officer, the acquisition officer, and the information officer to get this stuff right. Otherwise, we beat the CIO for things that, you know, as they say, you may have a seat at the table, but that's different than having a voice at the table. So I'm going to keep beating this drum too, although I don't think anybody's paying attention to me. Maybe I'm Don Quixote. But when you talk about what you said a few moments ago about digitization and the ability of, to connect different pieces to different pieces, it strikes me that eventually we could get to a point where there's no need to ever have another conversation about reorganizing government. Because even if one piece of one agency needs to talk to one piece of some other agency to maximize a customer experience, to maximize those journeys that OMB's writing about in the president's management agenda, that happens digitally. And so there's no need to pick an office up and stick an office in a different location on an org chart just for the sake of changing an org chart. It can all be done digitally. It's a powerful message. It's about avoiding the rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, cliche. that's exactly right. And if, and if you get the digital piece right, then eventually what you'll have is some, I'll say, vestigial organs, right? Like some pieces of the organization may no longer be relevant. And that demonstrated lack of relevancy will help the agency figure out how to reorganize rather than to just always start with either we either want to name this new system or we want to reorganize the office right is our first step to change all right um what will you watch moving forward dave in in all of the things that we talked about what are the next steps that you think people should pay attention to well we, we got to get customer experience front and center which we're doing the, i love the fact that we're making progress on doing things in increments rather than big long acquisitions we've got to be faster about adopting new technologies and that requires us to continue to push for acquisition approaches that suit the problem at hand Right. So we use the right kind of commercial based practices to get technology solutions quickly that we measure our progress and we report on the outcomes and that'll help drive behavior in the right direction. You mentioned Carol's conversation yesterday and I appreciate the plug very much. But um, to the point that you just made about acquisition, uh, another conversation on yesterday shows with our friend Dan Chenick talking about agile acquisition and applying those principles of agile software development and, and, and IT procurement or IT development to, uh, to the acquisition approach too. Yep. Agile is a crucial topic and it's not just the province of software developers. There's everything. All of us can be contributing to moving better with speed, which will help you keep pace with technology and not fall behind because the worst thing you can do is disappear for three years, implement a technology solution, come back to the customer and find out they don't like it. Plus it's like old technology you've implemented. Dave Wintergren, always great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Francis.
You can read more about the new Fatara scorecard in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on the next episode, the next steps for cyber at the Defense Department. Matthew Travis of the Cyber AB is on the next Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The director of the Office of Personnel Management says the federal government already sees what she calls, quote, agency hopping. Kieran Ahuja tells a Congressional Oversight Committee employees are moving to agencies that have maximum telework and remote work flexibility. Terry Gurton is president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. She's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor. Terry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. An anecdotal story to begin in the elevator coming into the office today spoke to a lady who works in a law firm in the same building in which Scoop News Group is located, talked about remote work. She's the only one in her office this whole week, and she's that her organization has lost people because her office tried to bring people back, make them work five days a week in the office. Federal government seeing exactly the same thing, isn't it? Is that what we can infer from what Kieran Ahuja is talking about? Welcome. Hi, Francis. Always happy to be with you. These statements don't surprise anybody. I mean, I can talk about our own organization and we made the decision to go to full telework and actually allow people to move away so that we could retain our really talented staff. And, you know, as we've been talking with Chico's at the federal level over the past year or two, issues around who works in classified facilities and SCIFs and how those have to happen, really created some disparity in treatment of the workforce. And it's no surprise that people are looking for employment opportunities to stay in the federal government, but get some of that workplace flexibility. Director Ahuja said at this hearing, we don't want agencies having to compete with each other for different employees within the federal government, but they they don't want that. But that's what's happening, isn't it? Based on what employees want, employees are kind of dictating the landscape for the first time in maybe ever in the federal government. I think that's true where where skill sets are portable, right? So there are places where skill sets aren't portable, um, you know, certain scientific skill sets or, you know, different kinds of technologies or, or policy areas where you are kind of wedded to the mission of a single organization, but where employees have the choice and the flexibility, they want to move. I don't think anybody has proposed that, for example, some of the some of the examples that uh, some of uh, the members of this subcommittee suggested in this hearing, well, we should bring all the IRS workers back and we should bring all of the, the uh, social security workers back that work with uh, it, citizens on a, day, a daily basis and a face-to-face basis. I don't think anybody suggested that those jobs should be made remote entirely and that citizens shouldn't have the opportunity to interface face-to-face when they want to. But for the jobs that don't require that, I still haven't seen a convincing argument why those people need to truck into Washington, D.C. or any other location across the country every day. Well, there's a couple of things there that I think we need to drill in on. One is that the functioning of organizations like the IRS and Social Security um, has to be disaggregated between how well they're funded and staffed in total and where those people are working and how they interact with citizens. Because both of those organizations have been drastically reduced in their funding level and their staffing levels over time. And that has a big impact on their efficacy and their mission performance. The second is that the government has data now 
about how impactful the opportunity to recruit remotely has been in improving applications um, and bringing in different skill sets. And remember that 80% of the federal workforce is outside the DC metropolitan area. And so if you really think about both of those, are we adequately staffing our federal agencies to do the work that they are assigned to do, regardless of where they do it? And second, given that most of them do it outside the Beltway, are we giving them the tools that they need to reach recruitable populations where they are? All right. You mentioned data and my colleague, Billy Mitchell, writes several lawmakers, mostly on the Republican side, didn't buy into Ahuja's thoughts on telework and ask for data to prove its benefits urging that federal employees are more productive when working in person. What is the data that's available that could make that argument, do you think, Terry? Do we have it yet? And what do we need to do to get it if that's what the executive branch needs to prove to the legislative branch? Well, I'm not sure that we have it yet. And I think OPM is working on that. The early indicators are in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, where uh, federal employees are reporting a higher connection to mission a higher um, assessment of how well they've performed their mission and a very strong preference for remote work. So that's, I think, the tip of the data iceberg. OPM is still working to to put together more comprehensive data that really demonstrates uh, mission effectiveness. And of course, you know, in our report on OPM um, a year or so ago, we really talked about the, the gaps in OPM's data analytic capability and how important it was to build that up. So in some ways, I think um, the data argument is a red herring. We know that people really prefer telework and we see their behavior, so that's immediate. But the second um, issue with that really is that our system is not structured to give us that kind of data on a on a quick and easily accessible basis. Now, I note, too, another data point, although it's not hard data, it's more anecdotal, might be that pretty much every Wall Street bank that said in the spring, eventually we're going to call people back to the office five days a week in Manhattan has completely walked that back. And in many cases, those uh, edicts have completely disappeared and some have gone far the other direction. And it strikes me that is an argument, maybe not convincing to everyone, but for an organization that is as committed as a big bank has to be to its bottom line and to the customers that it serves, strikes me if it was a bad business move, they wouldn't do it. Well, certainly, you know, OPM has given um, federal agencies a lot of discretion in how they approach bringing people back. And many agencies have uh, pulled their workforce and and had people sign up for varying remote and hybrid options. So some folks have the option of being in the office once every two weeks. Some people sign up for three times a week. Some people sign up for full-time in-person. Some people sign up for full-time remote. And they're still trying to sort out the the impacts of those. If you're full-time remote, does that mean you get locality pay or not? How many times a week do you need to be in the office to qualify for that? And then trying to solve the person problem before they solve the uh, the mission performance problem. All right. The theme, though, that I hear in all of what you just laid out there is flexibility. And that's what the rank and file employee on an individual basis is asking for, isn't it, Terry? 
Certainly. I mean, after two and a half years, people's um, work arrangements, work expectations, childcare, after school care, all of those things, their commute patterns, their, their preferences have all changed. And if we don't take advantage of that and offer those kinds of flexibilities, we're going to find that people choose with their feet. Right. And that's not a position we can be in. The government has a huge mission to accomplish. We need to keep qualified, talented, committed um, civil servants to do the work of government. All right. Regarding telework, my colleague Billy Mitchell writes that uh, Kieran Ahuja said OPM plans to provide agencies with, quote, additional resources to chart a path forward. What to someone leading in an agency would be the best resources, the most useful resources that OPM could provide for charting that path forward? Well, data is one, certainly. Um, flexibility, pilot authority, um, you know, something that says, we understand that your workforce, Department of Transportation, for example, your workforce has different needs from the Environmental Protection Agency. Talk to us about what those flexibilities are, how you propose to work. Um, so much of this also gets to funding. Do you have the infrastructure, the IT capability, the communications flexibilities, the security processes to make sure that you can work effectively? How do you interface with your with your constituents and your customer base? So it's all about flexibility, but also accountability. Is there a way to measure productivity in such a way that it's easy to look at the data and say, okay, we are definitely comparing pre-pandemic productivity to remote and telework productivity. And we can confidently say, we can see that productivity is better in, the, in a more work flexible environment. You know, that's a great question. And, and I'm not sure that the federal government really has a way to measure its productivity. Um, so again, we would turn to proxy measures and talk about retention, right? And departures and what which of those are voluntary and how many of them are between agencies and how many of them are outside, you know, departing the government as a whole. But one of the arguments that, you know, the Academy made back in our no time to wait papers, which we would argue there's still no time to wait, um, is that we have to think about the human capital system in the federal government based on mission first and how do we measure mission and how do we organize our workforce to support that mission we've never made that first connection about measurement of the federal government's mission we tend to look at satisfaction both for employees and citizens but that's not a measure of productivity so you ask a great question it always gets back to data that's not something we've constructed a government-wide measure of. I'm not sure that we could, but agencies perhaps could take it on. In the short run, we have to look at where people are moving and what they're choosing. And as you mentioned at the beginning, the indicators are they want more flexibility and they'll move to get it. Terry Gurton, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much. Francis, always a pleasure. You can read more about the hearing Terry and I talked about and Director Ahuja's remarks at it in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. We want you to nominate leaders in the federal IT community for their achievements and contributions. You can read more about how to nominate somebody through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
The thrift savings plan projects another several weeks of high call volume at its call centers before it gets back to normal. The high call volumes because of the transition to a new record-keeping backbone for its system. Kim Weavers, Director of External Affairs, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, where are we now with the transition that you've been talking to me about for, geez, a year or longer to the Converge system at the beginning of June? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Well, we are now two months in. And, you know, as as you said, our call volumes in June were stupendously high. Um just for context, we received 2.2 million calls in all of 2021. In the first 45 days, we received 1.2 million calls. So basically half of last year's volume came in in 45 days. Um, and so we couldn't, there was no way we could have predicted that level of volume. However, the contractor has staffed up. Um, and we are starting to see hold times coming down. We're tar- starting to see abandonment rates coming down, and we're starting to see participant satisfaction starting to edge up. And it's going to take a while, right? You, we have people who are not happy. We have people who are trying to get through on the call centers. But as I said, it is getting significantly better. And T. Ramos, who's the director of our participant services, was asked by one of our board members at our board meeting earlier. And T said that he believes that by mid late August, the call times will be back to our regular um, expected standards of, of excellent service. You used a term there. I want to make sure I understand. I think I do. Abandonment is when somebody calls in is on hold for a long time and they give up and hang up. Right. Exactly. And how are you measuring those things? And like, what's the mechanism that you use to measure those things? I don't know technically what it is, but when someone, we can track when someone calls in and how long they're on hold and then how long or how many people hang up during that period of time. I don't know how it happens. I just know it does happen. I see. Do you have a sense of the nature of the transactions that people are trying to do that causes them to need to call the call center? Like, are they the typical switch that somebody would want to make? Or are these situations where somebody maybe has a complicated uh, uh, transaction or a complicated uh, uh, situation that they need some, some extra help for some reason? Well, at the beginning of June, what we were getting a lot of calls about were people who were trying to create access, get access to their accounts and add beneficiaries because for for about 150,000 people, beneficiaries didn't transfer. They transferred, but they weren't visible. Um, And now what we're seeing is are people who want to conduct transactions and who have questions either have questions about what they're seeing when they go into their their my account online about how to do something or we have participants who don't have computers and they want to do things online and inherently withdrawals and loans just are more complex processes and they take longer to handle um one of the things i did want to say is uh previously pre-june one um all of our call center reps were generalists. They they handled everything. Um, 
post June 1, we have a system that's more like the DMV. You know, you go and you get the driver's license, they give you the A card. And if you're doing your license plates, they give you the F and the lines moved at different speeds. That's what we've we've implemented so that if you say you're looking for a withdrawal, you may have a longer hold time because those processes take longer. If you're looking for um, an account balance, right, that's going to be quicker because that's an easier, faster transaction. Yeah, you're triaging these people, it sounds like, which wasn't happening before you switched to the Converge system. So if I'm in line to do a withdrawal, I'm in line behind all the other people who want to do a withdrawal, not just whoever happened to call in that day before me. Exactly right. And that's instructive too. The what you described a moment ago is instructive too, because I think there was a perception among participants that people couldn't do anything on the new website. No, it it didn't work. And it sounds like what you're what you're getting to now is everything works. It's a matter of people understanding how it works and, and wanting to learn from another human how it works rather than trying to figure it out uh, just on their own. Absolutely. I mean, we've processed um, over 600,000 withdrawals. We've processed um, over 70,000 loans. So transactions are occurring. It's not that they're not. And um, almost 1.6 million people have successfully logged into their accounts. So things are moving. Um, it's just different. And anytime it's different, and especially when you're dealing with your retirement savings, right, you want to be darn sure about, because there's tax consequences to, to, you know, it's not, there may be tax consequences when you call the bank. There are for sure tax consequences with um, a 401k type plan. And you want to be sure you know what you're doing. One number that I thought was interesting from the presentation, you mentioned T. Ramos giving this presentation to the board uh, last week. One of the numbers I thought was interesting on withdrawals, 266,000 about uh, close to 267 uh, in uh, June of 2021. And this June, 318,000. So not only were you working through the system, you were working through uh, an increase in the volume of stuff that people wanted to do. Exactly. And that was in part because we had a blackout period for transactions at the end of May because we needed to be able to make a clean transfer. So what we're what that number most likely represents is people who would have taken withdrawals toward the end of May and then couldn't. And so they did it in June. OK, so the the volume that you mentioned uh, expected to get back to normal mid to late August does that mean that kind of the whole process that you believe that Converge itself, the whole transition will kind of be settled and into the regular rhythm that you anticipated by that time yes, period too? I, th I think so. Based on what I'm seeing and based on seeing the transactions that are occurring, um, I believe that people will have both our call center reps. I mean, again, when you bring on uh, 800 new people. It takes a while to get used to the new system. It takes a while to get used to the TSP rules, right? Even though they're trained, there's a difference between being trained and really understanding and knowing the answers. So I think there's just a, a cumulative uh, effect of all of that coming together. Is that hiring for the call centers a surge and you expect to kind of go back to normal staffing levels and normal service levels when the volume recedes? Or is this 
are you going to have access to this number of people and do that triage style response when people call in moving forward? We're going to do the triage style. And I think the answer on the, the, the staffing really is dependent on, on our ability to handle calls. So if, if we get more experienced uh, agents and they're able to handle calls more quickly, we may not need that level, but if the call volume continues to be high, we'll keep them on that. So that's, that is not, um, there's not a level that either the, the vendor or us are looking for. It's more the metrics of performance and, um, results that we want. When you were on last month and you and your colleagues are really up to your elbows in this, uh, you talked about the fact that you're going to do a post-mortem when you're going to, and, and try to understand what happened and, and learn lessons from it. I see now that there's a number of members of Congress that have asked the Government Accountability Office to come in too. Is that, what's what's the status of what you intend to do internally vis-a-vis what GAO is going to do? We'll be doing our review because we want to do our review, but we certainly welcome the Governmental Accountability Office coming in and taking a look. We, as, as we have talked for months, right, we have been planning and working toward this for 18 months. And so we're happy to have GAO come in, take a look at our planning, um, make sure we didn't miss anything. We don't think we did, but, you know, another set of eyes never hurts. Kim Weaver of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the TSP transition in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow with Matthew Travis of the Cyber AB. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.